Hello and welcome to Nobody's Coming to Fix You, a podcast for women, by women, talking all things life, empowerment and transformation. My name is Del Beer. I'm a businesswoman, sustainability advocate, industry leader in my field and have spent my whole career working in the fashion industry, working out what women actually want. I am the creator of the Sandsland Coaching and Transformation Programme and I am your host for this podcast. Joining me throughout the series will be lots of fabulous women and men too to talk about how we can share the best hacks to live our best lives. Hello and welcome to the Nobody's Coming to Fix You podcast with me, Del Beer. Today we have the honour of speaking with Fiona Hawthorne, the CEO of Women on Boards. Fiona brings a wealth of experience in championing diversity and equity in the corporate sphere. Our conversation today delves into the crucial topic of women joining boards and the transformative impact it brings to both individuals and to industry. Fiona's insights are invaluable as we explore the importance of creating pathways for women to ascend into board positions. Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here, can't wait. So before we talk about women on boards, let's talk about the area that you and your team are really focused on, and that is supporting people in a corporate environment to optimise their careers. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I believe in creating options and we do know there's very few women at the top of organisations. A huge amount of work has been done in regard to the boardroom and finding a few women to sit on our FTSE 100, FTSE 250 companies, which are the big listed companies on the London Stock Exchange. But actually, if you go below that and you look at the executive team, which are the small group of people running the company, there's very few women at that leadership level. So the work that we do with corporates is to go in probably people at sort of mid-career we do actually work with the 25 year old sort of plus but actually most corporates don't invest in that group and they start wanting to invest in the sort of mid-career when they think okay who's on the fast track to potentially being a leader and for those organizations or the companies that bring us in we're planting seeds to say actually it's your job to own your career It's not your line managers, it's not HR, own it. So what we go in and give tips and tricks, a little bit like you do in these podcasts, to say, you know, there's a few things, there's many, many things that you need to do to be authentic and get to the top. But we talk about meeting management. Is it working for you? Because if it's not working for you, you're really going to struggle. The other thing that's really crucial at the leadership level is influence. Mm. What is your influencing style? What style is needed to influence various stakeholders? And that could be your boss, it could be a different team, it could be a shareholder. Stakeholders come in many, many forms. But if you don't really get the influencing side right, influence is more important the higher up you go in the organisation. And then the final thing we talk about is championing your achievements. Mm. Does anybody know who you really are and what you do and how you can contribute to the team. Because even if your team knows, does anybody outside your team knows? Because when you get into taking on stretch positions, you do need other people to advocate for you rather than just your one bus. And those are the crucial things. But here's the real trick. We always then say to people, do you understand the boardroom? What's the board of your own company and that doesn't matter whether it's a not-for-profit or a university or a listed or private company those that understand governance 
succession planning, the committee structure, the environment, all the things that you need to know to make sure an organisation is robust and fit for the future. And it's like feeding baby chicks. And I think that's the interesting conversation that we've had is a lot of people don't know about the boardroom and they don't actually own their own careers. So that's what we do. We go into companies and say, wake up, we're planting seeds today, up to you. It's your choice, your life. But we want to make sure you've got the right options and the information that you need. And then, of course, they can come to WB Directors, Women on Boards for further help if they're interested. It's amazing. Totally aligned with our podcast and the whole concept of no one's coming to fix you and you need to crack on and do things yourself. I'm curious, though, what the employers get from this course. Obviously, it sounds fantastic and hugely beneficial for the employees. Traditionally, employers would always focus on course content that would benefit the business. This feels like they're actually investing in their team's journeys. If you look at what the employer wants, I mean, I talked about it's great when we work for those in their sort of 25, particularly women before they've had children. Women do give birth (laughs) and therefore they often have to take a little bit of time out. And even if you take some time out, options of potentially going onto a community board is very valuable. So the business will benefit by getting them back. They will come back to an organisation at a higher level. But largely we concentrate on what's in it for you as an individual, what's in it for your company and what's in it for the organisation and society as a whole. And we call it the seven reasons. The seven reasons why being on a board is good for you and everyone. And if you choose the right organisation, and there are lots of organisations to choose to sit on, maybe a not-for-profit board, it's a bit like taking a mini MBA in leadership, a master's in business, because... Many people, they're not at the leadership level, but if you go on your community board, it might be a sports board, it might be a hospice, it might be a local theatre, you're actually at the senior leadership governance level, possibly way before you are within your company. And you get to get a sense of what you know. For example, if you're in the marketing department or if you're in the human resources department, you actually know a lot of other things that you didn't know that you knew. And so getting involved in succession planning, getting involved in finance, maybe you're not involved in finance, but if you sit on a board, you have to sign off the accounts to say, yes, this is a reasonable, true and fair view of what I think is happening within the organisation. That's one of your responsibilities. So to actually have exposure to that. And also those individuals who are on community boards, they're different They're well-networked, they have different information and they can bring all of that learning and knowledge back to the organisation. So it's a super, super thing to do. But of course, when we talk to organisations, we say to them, let us come in and talk to your individuals because you want them to own their careers. You want them to realise what they don't know. And I know one of the things that you've looked at is branding yourself. You look at influence as well. There's many things you have to know. And all we're saying is we can't tell you how to do it. We can't tell you how to be authentic to you. We don't know who you are in a huge amount of detail. We don't know who your line managers are and the situation that you're in. But what we will do is give you pointers. And that's why any company that becomes a member of our organisation, they get free access to our network. And of course, we've got a very, very powerful WB Directors Networks where we do nine information events a month. Mm. So that might be on more information on setting goals. That might be on meeting somebody on a sports board. That might be on, we did an event recently with an organisation called Chapter Zero, which is about the environment. So all of that information can be brought back to the company. So we're not just like a pop-up workshop. 
We're a very, very powerful network of influence. And it's super to see when you see companies, their employees choose themselves to come to our events. And last week we met somebody from a very, very famous tech company, which I'm not allowed to name, but you might want to guess who that is. Somebody from JP Morgan, somebody from Lloyds Bank. And to see those group of individuals who wouldn't normally have met discussing issues in a social environment, fantastic. And that's what empowering people is all about. It's very focused networking as well then, I guess, what it's creating by people starting off on their courses in their organisations, coming to women on boards, networking, meeting people in other industries at a board level, coming in at a similar level, I guess. Well, all different ages within the network, we've got very established, really senior board directors. So we have a director circle group. And those are people who are sitting on very large, complex boards. And they want different discussions. They want a different network. But the beauty is within our network, they also cross into the other network of people thinking, oh, never thought about this. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, I'll take a look. So what our network does is also specialise on how you sell you into the board environment. Because when you apply to go on a local community board, they want to know how you're going to add value. And boards do two things, performance and conformance so how will you add value in that respect so we help package people up to sell themselves effectively and we hold their hand and we're their friendship gang so you get lots of different people in our organization lots of different areas networks which is great but sharing that wisdom and experience but everyone in our network is ambitious everyone's serious and we don't mind what your choices are we will help you if it's needed you mentioned that there's a famous tech company you've always got investment banks what kind of employers and industries are coming to you it's Fantastic. I mean, initially it was very much financial services who were under a lot of pressure from the regulators to improve the governance structure of their organisation and the diversity. So it's organisations like JP Morgan. We work with Linklaters, law firms. We work with utilities. So Scottish Water, for example, has been with us for many years. Advertising agencies, WPP, for example. So a huge different range of organisations. We work with BAT originally known as British American Tobacco. So very, very diverse. We've worked with a number of global organisations like Mondelez International, which is a food chocolates related company. So really, really super to work with individuals in India or in Singapore or in China and also American and Latin America. So huge different range, but not the retail sector very much, which is one of the things you and I have talked about in the past. And that's interesting because the retail sector is quite heavily populated with women at management level and I would think that that it would be a perfect course for retail businesses to come to you. You would think so but I think what's really interesting is the amount of money that organisations in general spend on leadership development. They spend very very little and when they do spend that money they spend it on maybe 10 15 individuals and those individuals they might send them to INSEAD, they might send them to Harvard, they might send them to London Business School. So that's when we've already decided our senior leaders, they spend very little money and this is all organisations not retail and what I describe as the permafrost, those middle managers who possibly have been promoted to their level of incompetence which is managing people because that's a skill and where companies do spend money they often spend it on uh, something like project management or it might be a specific 
specific skill they need as opposed to leadership development. And managing a business is about people. Whereas the retail sector has a lot of shops and they might have a few managers in those shops. They're very dispersed all over the place and the actual head office and the leadership team is a lot smaller. There also hasn't been the same pressure from the regulator whereas if you're in a regulated environment the utilities sector, the oil and gas sector, the financial services, the legal sector, also accountancy, professional services, we've got more regulation so more money is being spent when the regulator is questioning the leadership structure and the culture of organisations. And I think there's been less pressure in the retail sector, albeit there have been a few interesting scandals. That's so interesting because I think that one of the things that we talk about a lot is what is happening in the retail industry and how many women are choosing to exit the industry way before time. McKinsey's on this big report called The Great Breakup and it focuses on women in their 40s and 50s deciding that they're going to quit. They're not ready for retirement. They just feel that the industry doesn't sort of see them, doesn't hear them anymore. And it really worries me, not only because we're losing that experience from our industry, but for those people who want to join the industry straight from university, they're not able to benefit from mentors and guides throughout their career, which is something that I had when I joined the industry. All the way through, I had people helping to shape and guide me. So I think I now understand probably why we are having this problem in retail, because I feel like the investment's not happening. And it's interesting what you say about the regulation, because the pressure's not on them. They don't need to make the effort. And I think that we have a lot of people at board level in retail, and they're often men. And then we have a lot of, you know, mid to senior management females in the 40s or 50s often checking out and starting their own business or leaving the industry, leaving corporates anyway. And then we have this massive gap. And I think that in about 10 years time, we're going to find ourselves the real problem with our retail industry in the UK if we don't address it. I think what's interesting, if you look at Ted Baker, for example, a famous retailer where you had a strong founder mentality and the culture was questioned, but because you had the strong founder mentality. And I think what is really changing is the people on the street. They're calling it out. The employees are beginning to call it out. So people are no longer prepared to accept poor culture and poor behaviour and there is a war on talent and people are walking. I think when you get up into senior leadership and it doesn't matter whether we're talking about the retail sector or the investment banking sector, we all think we're different but if you look at the gender pay gap nowadays there's almost no gender pay gap in those people between 20 and 30. The gender pay gap starts after individuals and couples have had families And then when you come back, you're coming back at a different level. The other area the gender pay gap really scales up is where an organisation is expecting you to work very long or very unsocial hours that doesn't fit into family life. And that's why I talk about investment banking and the legal side. Retail, you need to give people a degree of flexibility. We know diverse teams perform better. We know you need to lead diverse teams in different ways. But actually, we haven't changed the way and the structure we lead. Whereas if you gave a group of people in retail industry and said, we need to restructure our hours of how the leadership team leaders or job shares and all those other things, it is possible. But if the incumbent management team are not comfortable with that, they won't do it. And I think there's a lot of change that has to happen within the retail sector to say, actually, that leader could do that job. It doesn't look like the same as the individual, but they might want to work flexibly in a slightly different way. But they will still get the job done. 
And I think that's the challenge. And that's why training and support in terms of how you lead and understanding best practice and also knowing how to challenge when you're challenged to say, no, we don't do it like that here. Well, actually, maybe we should. But you need like minds to support organisations when they go through that period of change. And I don't think the retail sector has quite got there yet. Margins are also very thin. We have to talk about profitability here. And if margins are thin and you can't get the investment... I was listening to a podcast the other day, actually, with Lloyds Bank saying, how long does it take? Fiona Cannon was talking, who's been in charge of cultural change, and she said it takes at least 10 years to reap any of the benefits from the work that you've done in cultural change. So it takes time, and people want fast results. And if they put the investment in, they want to see the investment tomorrow. That doesn't happen with cultural change in leadership. And I think with margins being so tight in the retail sector, that's another issue. I really hope there are retail leaders listening to this podcast and we'll put the details in the show notes of how to reach out to your organisation if they want to work with you to empower their leaders. I think that would be amazing. And I think, well, not just for retail, but for all industries, I think it seems like it's really very exciting that people are investing in their leaders to optimise their own careers, because I've always been aware of courses and, and I've always been on courses myself where it's always been about business first. And we need to send you on a course because it's in the business's interests. So the fact that this is happening, I find it quite encouraging, actually. And it's quite enlightening that people are actually investing in their teams to be the best that they want to be. That could be a risky decision. I mean, they could end up leaving. They could end up deciding that they want to run their own business. When you let people think about empowerment and optimizing their life, it won't always go in the direction of the company. Interesting enough, I was talking to an electronics company and they were saying, oh, we don't do leadership development and we don't send people on MBAs to business school because we're worried that if we do, they will leave. And I said, well, in that case, let's not train anybody. Let's just hide all the toys under the table. But actually, if you've got an organisation that's a training culture, you expect people to come and go. And actually, movement in the business creates opportunity for people to take stretch positions. And I think that's the other thing about leadership development. If you are not like the incumbent group, you need to feel competent and an expert before you take a stretch job in a stretch job you've never done before. So competent before you're confident enough to apply, let alone win that interview. Also, you need to be better at answering those interview questions. And clearly, if you've been on a leadership development course or an MBA, you're more confident that most change programs fail. Why? Because they don't get the hearts and minds of people. So if you're asked a question about have you led any change programs, we're going through a period of change and we'd like you to consider leading that department or division. How you win an interview is important. And if you are from a group that's not like that incumbent, the bar for the quality of your question is going to have to be higher. So when we look at leadership development, that's why we're giving people the tools, but we also support them at the point of interview so that they don't fall into the trap of chatting Mm. because leaders don't chat. Mm. They identify the problem. Mm. They use their previous experience and they win at the influencing level. And influence is also about winning that stretch promotion. So we want to not only inspire people to imagine themselves as leaders, but also consider their plan and what they might need to do to get there. And that's why it's about creating options and knowledge, because I don't mind whether they do it or don't. And nowadays, organisations have to explain their purpose to organisations and younger employees 
and older employees don't want to work for organisations that don't do good and destroying the planet. And that's a very interesting side for the retail sector because the whole supply chain, packaging, sustainability, I think you need some real skills in the retail sector to lead that and you need different types of individuals. So let's talk about Women on Boards, which you founded in 2012 with some other directors too. At the time, women only represented about 11 to 12% of board seats. And now 11 years on, according to Companies House data, it's nearly at 40%, which is quite impressive. Not exactly where we need to be, but still a significant improvement. How much of that has been driven by the work of organisations like yourself? Well, there's been many organisations involved. And I think to start off with, the government under Lord Davis was tasked with looking at why there were so few women on our FTSE 100 boards. And they set the target of 30%. I think they started at 25, 30% and they moved to 40%. So that small group plus many organisations have all piled in to support and be the change that we want to be. So I think what's happened is we've micromanaged a few companies. We have sort of been involved in that, but our job is to actually support those women applying for board roles. So there's lobbying the companies at their board level to say, have you considered, have you thought, might you? And nowadays, nobody says, well, why should I? What difference does it make? I think my favourite one is Lillette's tampons. Lillette's had an all-male board and an all-male leadership team. And many years ago, they thought, well, why should we do this? But it's actually, you know, now nobody would dare have that conversation because different minds. So there's been many organisations involved. I think what's interesting is if you look outside the FTSE 350 or the FTSE All Share, which is the largest, most liquid listed companies, the diversity and I take women just as one example of diversity because there's ethnic minorities on borders as well you need to look at you're looking at still around 16 percent if you look into private equity it's still very very poor so private companies still very very low and then of course the hard work has yet to be done finding a few women to sit on the boards of a few organizations we obviously need several hands to do it but if you look at the all listed companies and alternative investment market, again, liquid ones, you're talking about 4,800 sheets. So we're not talking many individuals in the UK, but outside there's still a lot of work to be done. So it's an exciting time. So we took the opposite. We thought some people can lobby the companies. And what we will do is transparently advertise board vacancies for free so that individuals have got one place to go to see a window shop on all those organisations that advertise. So I'm super proud that our organisations has advertised nearly 50,000 board positions for free since we've launched. Nevertheless, in any one month, we have about two to 300 board positions, 50 new ones a month, and they change all of the time. They still don't represent a decimal place as to what's out there because most boards still don't advertise. And whilst our large listed companies in the FTSE 350, the regulator says, I expect you to comply and explain your process and I expect you to use a headhunter. Mm. And I also expect you to do board evaluations. So there's a lot of pressure on that sector. But outside that sector, people still are not using headhunters. And the headhunters is your first route to actually widen the net from people that we know. And most organisations still don't use headhunters. So there's still a huge amount of work to be done, which is why what we like to do, those people who know about us come to us because they want to see the vacancy board. They also want to know how to apply, how to write a board CV, 
and they want our support holding their hand at the point of interview. So that's what we do, which is very, very different from other organisations in this space. But there's still a huge, huge amount of work to be done, which is where the corporate side comes in. Because if we can get people earlier to say, actually, if you come to us in your 50s, 40s and 50s, saying, I want to think about the board position, you're up against people who've already been on boards. And the dynamics of the boardroom are very different. And to really understand your board value add, it's now a very competitive place. So we like people to go on them early. And if you look at those people who get to the C-suite, the top executive team, many of them have been on a board before the age of 28. And if you look at what we're talking about here, Alison Rose, a famous chief executive of NatWest, recently stepped down. Her first board position, she was 15 years of age. She was a trustee on her local lifeguard association where she was a lifeguard. Her second board was university. It would be a sports board, possibly the chess club board, that sort of thing. She was a school governor before the age of 30. She was already different. She was already behaving as a leader within her community. And I think that's fascinating. And those people, you can imagine two individuals, and maybe they work for, we work with PwC, we work with a number of accountants. If you're in the partnership track for PwC, there aren't that many partnership roles every year. We've got two identical candidates. And even though they're stretching out to support more diverse candidates getting into that pool, you've got two identical candidates. One is a leader in their community Mm. and one isn't. That could be the marginal thing that gets you that promotion and you're likely to interview better, which is why what we do within the corporate space is equally as important as what we do within the network. This is so interesting because I think for most of us, we might embark on extra activities at school or at university. We might belong to committees or, you know, we might start off as, I don't know, school prefects or whatever, end up at committees, running a student union, etc. We go to work and then we sort of just assume our position. I think if we asked most people in their 20s, could you join a board? They'd say, I've obviously not got enough experience. They wouldn't believe that they were able to do that. So I think this is really fascinating that we should encourage younger people to kind of get involved at a much earlier age. And like you said, maybe that is the thing that differentiates them from another candidate, that extra broader experience they're going to get from it. I think what's interesting, we've been going for 10 years and we actually now don't call ourselves Women on Boards. We're known as the Women on Boards Network. We call ourselves WB Directors. Because interestingly now, the word women often puts organisations off. No, no, not about women anymore, about allies. We're about ethnic minorities. We're like black empowerment. And yet women is still an issue. And the work we do with corporates is not gender specific. Because actually the work that we do for our membership is not gender specific either. It's about quality information. But what hasn't changed is whilst we've made a lot of movement in the big corporate space in terms of the number of women sitting on the board as non-exec trustees or governors, still today when you talk about the boardroom it's like feeding baby chicks. They just sit there and go, God, I never thought, really? Never thought. Because when you talk about the boardroom we all think of big organisations. We don't imagine our tiny football club. I don't imagine the chess club. And if you talk to schools, and I can't do everything, but I do love from time to time going in to talk to schools, let's tell the 16-year-olds about the boardroom. Because when they go to college, there's college boards. And some of those individuals, they'll learn more by sitting on their committees. It might be the netball committee, it might be the chess club or the ski club. They'll be dealing in finance, they'll be dealing with membership, they'll be dealing with marketing. They might learn more from that and finance than they would 
through their degree. Who knows? It depends on what their degree is doing. And what I want to make sure is it's not just those people who are entitled. Because if you look at the very senior leaders like Alison Rose, Carolyn McCall, who, you know, is Channel 4, she's been EasyJet chief exec, she's done all sorts, she was also a teacher. If you look at their backgrounds, they've often had international backgrounds, parents that lived overseas. They had exposure to different things in a different way. Whilst we can say, oh, we've got a woman, we must be culturally fine. We've got one woman, we've got a black executive, we've got an Asian executive, we've got international people. Those people could already be quite entitled. And it's a bit like checking my own privilege. Mm. My father was one of the first Burslem boys to go to university. I went to comprehensive school. However, because my father was picked out and supported by a teacher to go to university, he supported my mother working. Mm. So I was one of the only children at the school gate with my mother. Now she trained as a teacher. But also my father, because of the support he'd been given by the community, became a community leader in every town that we went to. So he might be on the police authority board. He was a magistrate. He was a principal of our local technical college. So when he didn't have childcare, even when he was in the RAF, he would take me and I would sit in the corner. Mm. So my exposure to boardrooms or meeting management or feeling I was entitled to sit at the table and my view matters, my history and journey is very different to most people. So I didn't view leadership or committee structures as something oh, I didn't need to worry about. Also, people make the judgment, oh, boards, that sounds very serious. Mm. And I've talk to you in a minute about governance and what it is all about a small community board they might only have four trustee meetings a year if it's well run and well organized that's your time that's your life and the board meetings might be in the evening and yet we're all imagining we can't fit it in it's not allowed and actually if you look at the leadership of lots of the companies that you work for just look at what boards they're on you're right. People think it's very serious. And I think what they really mean is it comes with seniority. It comes with age and it comes with experience. And I think what you're unpacking is actually we can access this at any age, at any level. And even at a quite small level, in a smaller organisation, we can have this complementing our career as we go through our 20s and 30s. So that by the time we get to quite a senior level in our career, we've actually got quite a good understanding of the whole board structure and governance and all the rest of it. I think this will be super interesting, especially for younger people listening to this. Can we talk a little bit about shadow boards? I will do. But first, maybe we just explain what the main board is and then why a shadow board can make such a difference. Most people who sit on our FTSE 100 boards have never done a course. They've learnt on the job. They don't have a governance certificate. And there are some really good governance certificates out there where you can learn all about company law. You can learn all about the regulator, whether it's the Charities Commission, the Pensions Regulator, the Bank of England, the Financial Conduct Authority, Ofcom, Ofgem, all the regulators. There's a lot to learn in terms of your duties, responsibilities and liabilities. But actually, it's common sense. So what we do is to say, what you need to know if you join a board is what a board does, what you know, what you don't know, and how you might get that knowledge if you need it. Because the board table is a collection of people who all have different skills. So you might have somebody who's an accountant, you might have somebody who's a marketing expert, you might have a lawyer, you might have an ex-chief exec. So we all bring different things. So understanding the board environment that you're joining, but boards do two things, that's it. Performance, strategy and stargazing. 
just calling the executive team to account. Mm. So if you're on a school governing board, that's about saying, is the headmaster fit for the job? Do we have a health and safety policy? Understanding how the regulator works. And then there's the conformance, which is actually filing your accounts. Mm. You do need people to question because when you are a limited company, basically you are protected as individuals if you're running that company. It's the company that's liable, not the individuals. If you're a charity, you get special dispensation and you don't pay VAT. So if somebody gives you money, you need somebody saying, OK, we've been given money for, I don't know, guide dogs for the blind. Mm. So we should actually be buying guide dogs for the blind. Mm. And if you've set up a constitution that says this is what your charity is all about, if you do something else, it's called fraud. Mm. You're stealing money from donors and not doing what you expect to do. And that's what the board's there to do, to make sure it's all right. So what we do is explain what the board does. Even the company law is not difficult. Four things you must do, three things you mustn't do. It's a bit more complicated than that. But let's not oversweat it. Because actually it's common sense. And if you sit on a small community, a theatre board, and it might be GDPR and all those other things, which is, you know, data protection, just asking the question, sorry, do we have a data protection policy? You're not there to do it. But until you join a board, you don't know what you know and what you don't know. Now, so the board, wisdom and experience matters because you've got more to offer and more to share. However, age matters as well. Technology, skills, and the board can't cover everything, and that's where a shadow board can come in. Because lots of boards are saying, actually, we need the young voice. They're a purchaser, they're buyer, but they might not have all the wisdom and experience that might be needed at a higher level. So that's where shadow boards come in. And the shadow board is a group of people that communicate with the board, but the board has to take the shadow board seriously. They don't necessarily see the whole board pack, but they might be given a problem to say, we've got a strategy, what would you do? Just throw some ideas in. Or we're thinking of going into China, or we're thinking of developing a new product range. What are your thoughts on it? And it's how the main board uses the shadow board that's really, really important. And I think really inspired organisations, divisional department level, are setting up little shadow teams and saying, OK. And they're also structuring how you get on that board, making sure the shadow board's chaired properly making sure the shadow board has term limits. Because what we don't want is a shadow board being, oh, and then they sit there forever alongside their day job and they love their position, but actually they don't have change happening within that. So setting it up and doing it properly is really important, but I'm really inspired by those organisations who are setting up shadow boards and are accepting challenge. There are other ways to look at it. You can have employee representatives on boards. There's lots of different ways you can cut a similar cake, but I think a shadow board, it's a great training ground as well for people to move on to boards or committees as well. And for the culture of the organisation, for people to know that actually their views are maybe being represented through the shadow board. You have to have an open culture where the chief executive or the C-suite team want to listen to their views. Because if you set one of these up and then they get ignored, you will go backwards in terms of your culture. But it's showing to the companies that we want to listen to these voices. We want to be challenged. And good organisations are diverse and they want to be challenged. We run a workshop called Get On Board, which is how to sell your board value add. What's the role, responsibilities and the liabilities? And also the dynamics of the boardroom. Because if you join a board and the culture isn't right in the boardroom, 
and the chair and the chief exec don't have a good relationship or the board is chaired badly, we've all been to meetings that are chaired badly, mm. I don't want to be on a board no. where I'm personally liable for what goes on because there's an information gap and you have to be comfortable with that. And that's why getting exposure to the boardroom early on in your life, you don't know whether you're going to like it. You don't know whether it's right for you right now. But it might be for one day. We all change. So that, to me, is information is power. And I think the work that you're doing, providing nuggets of information, quality conversations, safe environments mm. to support people to get on is so important. And so the shadow board is made up of employees, just to be clear, essentially. It can be made up of employees. It can be made up of an external group. It could be made up of a few employees and we might advertise a shadow board position. So you could be a membership organisation, Innovate UK and Renewable UK have shadow boards and Renewable UK applied to their memberships. So they represent the renewable industry. So they spoke to all the companies and advertised a role and you could apply, but you had to be a member and that's membership voice. So those aren't people that work within that membership organisation. They work outside the organisation, but this is an organisation. So if we're going to represent our membership companies, we know that need those voices. So actually, I think Renewable UK said that they advertised, they got 200 applications they also realised that they need people to sit on that board for longer. I think it was a one-year post and they thought that's not long enough. That's how seriously you have to take it. Yeah. And if you go outside, then you need term limits. How do we get people off the board? It's the same as on the main board. So it is a serious thing. And if you're going to do it well, you need to take it seriously. But yes, you can have people outside as well as inside. Advisory boards is a different one. Let's talk about advisory boards. So an advisory board, it could be like a shadow board, but an advisory board is a group of advisors who give advice. So there might be individuals. People can listen to your advice or ignore your advice. So I'm on the advisory board of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's University. So they do research on the issues that women have globally. And Julia Gillard, the ex-Prime Minister of Australia, chairs that. I just like being next to her. Fantastic woman. That advisory board, they'll tell us what research they're about to do. They'll tell us what their thinking is. And then there's a group of us, and we can all say, well, that's been done before. Or have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? They can listen to that advice, take that advice, or ignore that advice. It is advice. Whereas a shadow board, it's sort of similar, but they're often given quite a confidential information to be working on specific projects. An advisory board tends not to work like that. Do you think that employees could go to their employers and say, I want to set up a shadow board, I want to be part of a shadow board, we don't have one? KPMG have set up something called um, Future Leaders and they've asked all of their sort of divisional companies to say, or teams, organisations, because it's a large company that does lots of different things, we want to know how you are listening to the young person's voice. You come up with a solution, but tell us what you're going to do. And they surveyed a lot of people, not just within KPMG, but outside. So that future leaders group. And they found that the young people say, 80% of them say, yes, people are hearing our voice. We've got a route to hear our voice, but we think our voice is being ignored. And that's an issue. Because if you think about the change that we're seeing in organisations and the need for quality talent, you've got to listen to that talent. So there's many ways you can do it. And through that group, some of them are setting up shadow boards. So you can ask your company. But information is power. Go to the company and it's a bit like you said, why should you go on a board? You know, we've got the argument, seven reasons. 
It's a CV differentiator. It's a leadership. I'll be sharing my knowledge in the community. I'll bring in community back. It will make me a better leader. So you've got to have the same arguments as Shadow Ball because if somebody doesn't know, they feel vulnerable and they just say no. What about when an organisation doesn't have a good level of diversity in its executive levels but is good at kind of getting the board right I see that happening quite a lot, you know, and I feel sometimes I do feel like, is this just tokenistic that because of governance and all the rest of it, everyone's ensuring a quite a healthy, diverse board. But through the organization, that diversity doesn't actually exist. How much influence would you have in the boardroom then if you're a woman and culturally views of female leaders are not actually being echoed throughout the organization I think this is a fascinating discussion because this can go into many places now. Just because you're a woman sitting on a board or an ethnic minority doesn't mean to say that you understand people, culture and leadership. So I think it's the duty of the board now to ask the right questions. So, for example, does our diversity and inclusion strategy align with our business strategy? As opposed to saying, do we have quotas? Let's set a target. Let's set up a mentoring group. All of these ideas can come from individual board members, but let's hope that they really do have the expertise mm. because if they don't have the expertise, they're talking from their own personal views. Yeah. So I think changing a culture, I do believe that we should have targets mm. for diversity, all forms of diversity at thought within division, but we shouldn't have top targets that say 40%, 30%. We should have intelligent targets. If the IT department starts at 5%, giving the target of 40% is ridiculous. We also need to know what turnover is happening in different divisions, so it should be bottom up. But changing culture, and it's about leadership, it's not about recruiting the best people. Many organisations have recruited some of the best graduates, the most diverse graduates, and they don't keep them for more than two or three years. So it's a systemic change in the way we lead, and it takes time. And I think boards still today don't have the right expertise in the boardroom. The research that we did last year was called Hidden Talent, where we looked at these over 1,000 boards, 4,800 positions. If you take the non-execs, in general, the non-execs have come from a financial services background. They're financially literate. The registered executive director are the CEO or the CFO. There isn't the people, talent and culture expertise in the boardroom historically. There may be within the executive team, and still that's often not the case. The executive teams aren't very diverse and you don't see many people leaders in the diverse. That's beginning to change. But the real power lies in the boardroom. The real power is if you've got a chief exec and a chief finance officer saying we need more investment in leadership development over the long term. They're the main voice of the executive team. So again, I think you do need to look at the composition of the board and I don't see the talents quite right and I don't think it's quite there yet. Yeah, I definitely think there's more work to be done there. I've worked in organisations where it definitely feels that there's a cap on how far women are actually going to go. And then I look at the board composition, which suddenly looks very lovely and healthy and reflective of all kind of like diversity quotas. And I just wonder like whether this is kind of completely end-to-end -end working. Just think there's more work to be done on the executive track. Lloyds Bank, who've been working on it for 10 years, says it's taken 10 years to get to a really good place. That's assuming they've been trying and they've been doing a lot. PwC would say the same. KPMG would say the same. So any board that thinks that this is an easy problem to fix, it's just not true. 
it's a very difficult problem to fix, but you have to care and want to do it and bring in shadow boards. Also, we haven't talked about the committee structure that's on the boards. Some of the detail work can be done on the committees, and many boards are changing the remit of their committee structure so their remuneration and nominations committee that's looking at leadership and change are actually called them culture committees, and they're beginning to look at other things, and I think that's quite exciting. Interesting. Now, we've got a couple of rapid-fire questions for you. (laughs) I'm going to whiz through them. They're actually very simple. I asked a couple of people what they would like me to ask you today, and and these were some of the questions that came up. So first, do you need to have a certain level of seniority in your role before you apply for a board position? No. Depends what you're applying for, but no. Are there specific skill sets or experiences they should cultivate beforehand? The one thing you need to do is to be able to read a P&L and balance sheet, and it's not difficult. So one of the things that we do with PwC is reread the Burberry accounts for a laugh, because the last thing a board needs is a load of accountants. The last thing British Cycling needs is a load of cyclists. But that's the one skill that I would try and get, and it's not difficult. It can be common sense. You don't have to be an expert. Can you only be successful in getting a board position in the industry that you have experience in? No, we all think we're more comfortable in the industry that we know something about, but actually diverse in terms of knowledge of different experiences. I mean, I've been on site charity boards. I've been on college boards. I've been on school boards. I've been on startup boards. That's not my background. Should you have a different CV for board roles versus your career? Absolutely. Um, you're explaining your board value add. You're not there to run the business. You're there to oversee the business and it's completely different. So our top tip is take your executive CV shred it and don't look at it and start with a blank sheet of paper and that's one of the things that we do a lot of work within is helping people write a really good board cv that's very interesting three top tips to secure a board role oh top tips tell people tell people that you're interested in boardrooms tell people your board value add and tell your organization that you're aspirational and that you want to join a board should you consider the organization's diversity before you consider a board role yes and no i think what you do is you consider the organization's board do you like the individuals do they have the right skill sets in the boardroom are you happy being collectively responsible in an organisation with them. I think when you join a board, if you know it needs to go through a period of change, knowing that, and if you want to be that change agent, that's a good thing. If you don't want to, then don't do it. So knowing what you want to do and how you want to do it is important, but that shouldn't put you off. Thank you for that, Fiona. Um, Santalan means balance. And before you go, I'd like to ask you, how do you find balance in your life, in your very busy life? Life goes through phases. So I've got 27-year-old and 24-year-old sons. So I've got much more time in my life. My husband also runs his own business. So we have a huge amount of flexibility in what we do. And in fact, if you look at successful women executives, who they marry and who their partner is is really important, particularly if they're both ambitious. And as luck would have it, I married a man whose mother was the main breadwinner. So his view when I we had children was, well, it wasn't my responsibility and it wasn't just his responsibilities, our collective responsibilities. So my life has changed through various different cycles and there are times I've had to be full on supporting the children, there's times I've been full on at work, but I've had a partner that I can flex with and I think that is also really important to think about. Did I think about that when I married him? No, of course I didn't. But, you know, it does change. 
Oh, it's wonderful. Wonderful to hear. So then lastly, if people want to join Women on Boards, what should they do? It's really, really easy. Just log on to our website, WB Directors, and there's various memberships and various support packages that we can give you, and we're delighted to support. And even if you just want to hover, hover around for five years if you like. doesn't matter to us. We're there for you. But just get a sense of who we are so that you know when you do need us, you're ready. And I've been a member for several years and I think it's a fantastic organisation and I think your events are fantastic. I think it's a really good way to network and to consider different opportunities. My first event that I went on, I met wonderful women from different industries and I came away with so much information in such a short space of time. It was fantastic. So uh, we'll put the link for Women on Boards on our show notes anyway. And that's it. Thank you very much for, for coming on our podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. And as we discussed earlier, I'm particularly keen to support women and men in the retail sector. Why wouldn't I? Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast with Fiona and found the information helpful. If you want to start the new year with a focus on a board position, then do join Women on Boards. The links are all in the show notes at www.santaland.com slash podcast. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Nobody's Coming to Fix You. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please follow us and subscribe for future episodes. If you have any questions about the content of this show, all the details will be in the show notes. You can also reach out to us on Instagram and TikTok at Santaland Coaching. Nobody's Coming to Fix You is brought to you by Santaland, a 12-month coaching and transformation program for women. To learn more, please go to www.santaland.com. I'm your host, Albia. Until next time, stay well.